Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be with you guys. And for those of you who are visiting, maybe new to the church, it is good to have you with us as well. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we have been trekking our way through uh, this incredible book of the Bible called Philippians. It's not a long book, only four chapters. Uh, You could read it in a short amount of time. Um, But it is packed full of incredible, incredible beauty as it invites us to step into the life that Jesus is inviting us to step into, regardless of the circumstances that we may face in this life. Paul, the apostle, is writing to a church in a city called Philippi. Uh, Philippi was a place uh, where many, many people who were very loyal to Rome uh, ended up retiring, uh, often uh, whether they were military leaders or government workers. Uh, they, people were given plots of land to be able to uh, kind of live the good life uh, as they were loyal to Rome. Rome was paying them back. And this church that sprung up in Philippi uh, is in the midst of that environment. And Paul has come to the people there and declared to them, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord which I don't know if you can imagine, but in Philippi, that's not the most popular message uh, that you could be telling. And Paul uh, loves this church. He loves this group of followers of Jesus that are there, and they are uh, supporters of Paul. Paul, right now, while he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, uh, we believe he is in a Roman prison uh, or under house arrest, Uh, We know that he is uh, not a free person at the time of the writing of this letter. And we believe that when Paul was writing this letter, he was, uh, it was at the time he was waiting to stand trial um, from the emperor of Rome. And so he was going to have to go before the emperor of Rome and give an account for why he believes in Jesus uh, and that Jesus is Lord, uh, which as you may imagine, is not going to be a popular message either. And as he's getting ready for that, he's writing to this church and he's saying to them, hey, listen, I know it sounds crazy, but as it turns out, me being here in prison under house arrest in Rome waiting to meet Caesar has actually turned out for a lot of really fruitful gospel labor. Um, Ironically, you would think Paul, who Jesus called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, you would think a guy like that with that calling on his life would be thinking to himself, well, the best place I can be is out there doing the work of God, doing the work of Christ, living for the kingdom. The best place I could be is probably not in a prison cell, probably not under house arrest. But as we've trekked through Philippians chapter one, we see that Paul is recognizing that the opportunity that he has before him Uh, to bring the good news of who Jesus is and why he is sitting in prison in the first place to those who are within the emperor's inner circle is actually bearing a lot of fruit for the gospel Uh, because it had been known to the whole palace guard why Paul was imprisoned in the first place. And that's a really big deal. Everyone within the emperor's inner circle would have had a sense and an understanding of why Paul was where he was at. And that's huge. And I don't know how much you know about Roman history, but if you know who this emperor is that he's going to be before, it's an even bigger deal because his name is none other than Nero, who was a very bad dude. 
Now, we know, uh, based on the timeline of Paul's life up to this point, Nero has not kind of made his turn where he's begun to persecute Christians in a heavy way. We believe that Paul will actually uh, experience and die under that persecution later on in his ministry. Um, but at this time, Nero is still somewhat uh, amicable towards followers of Jesus in general. But I think as he begins to learn more and more and more about what Christianity is all about, I think he begins to recognize a little bit more that, that Christianity is in fact a threat to the empire because Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And so here's Paul. He's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. He's saying, listen, I know it sounds crazy, but as it turns out, me being in prison is very fruitful for the gospel. And as Paul steps into this next section, which we're traveling through today together, he's actually going to say uh, something that is even more astounding, which it's already pretty astounding to say, hey, listen, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to look at my circumstances, and I'm going to view those circumstances through the lens of the kingdom of God rather than through the lens of, you know, are they good? Are they bad? Do I like them? Am I a fan? Am I not a fan? Uh, is this a mountain? Is this a valley? Is it somewhere in between? Paul's saying, no, I'm actually looking at my circumstances and saying, how can God use these circumstances to advance his kingdom through my life? And so as Paul has kind of unpacked that in terms of whether he would be imprisoned or whether he would be free, that's already like a huge uh, a statement for him to make. Like whether I'm free or imprisoned, I'm still living for the kingdom of God. That's huge. But what we're walking into today, he's even going to up the ante from there. And so let's go ahead and jump into our Bibles together as we jump into the text uh, that is before us today in Philippians chapter one. We're going to start in the second half of uh, verse 18. So if you uh, grabbed one of the Mosaic Bibles on your way in, um, you can turn to page 1083. And by the way, if you don't have a good Bible at home, we want to encourage you to take one of ours, write your name in it, and most importantly, read it, which is a good thing to do with a Bible, not just a paperweight. All right. And we're really big fans here of the author, uh, who we believe is God, right? And so we just really want to encourage you. If you don't have a good Bible, take one of ours. We'd love for you to have it. Uh, but we're in Philippians chapter 1. We're starting in verse 18 in the second half. Paul has just said that he is rejoicing in the fact that Christ is proclaimed, regardless of the circumstances in which Christ is being proclaimed, even regardless of the motivations of people proclaiming Christ. Paul's just like, I'm just glad that the, the good news of who Jesus is is going to the ends of the earth and that God is using my time here in Rome in an effective way. And so he continues on with that thought process in the latter part of uh, the second part of verse 18. And he says this, yes, and I will rejoice. So he's already said in that I rejoice. And now he's saying, yes, I will rejoice. Now, anytime repetition is found in the Bible, pay attention because God is trying to help us see something that's important. Remember, are Paul's circumstances good or are they difficult? They're difficult. They're bad circumstances. He's under house arrest. He's waiting to see Nero. This could go very poorly for him. And yet Paul is saying, I'm going to rejoice regardless of my circumstances, in spite of my circumstances. And what that demonstrates to us is that our joy is not found in our circumstances. Our joy is found in who God is, in what he has done, in his goodness, in the way that he has loved us despite our sin, the way that he has loved us, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us, the way that he's invited us to be a part of his family and to be a part of his kingdom and to engage on mission with him. 
whether it's a good day, it's a bad day. Whether we're sick or we're healthy, whether we are getting the promotion or we're losing our job, that in the midst of any and every circumstance, we can have joy because our joy is not found in our circumstances, but instead found in him, in Jesus. And so Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. He's not ashamed. Verse 19, he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul has a confidence that though his circumstances are difficult, he's not stuck in them forever, that God has a purpose and he's sovereign and he's good and he's able to work uh, sovereignly and providentially in our lives so that regardless of the human things that are going around us, we're not bound to those, but we're bound to the will of God as he unfolds it in our life. And so he's saying, listen, because of your prayers, church in Philippi, they were partners in the gospel. God's going to use your prayers to, to move me forward on the mission that he's unfolded in my life. And it's not just prayer. Prayer is important, but if we're just praying to thin air, or we're praying to a false god, or we're praying to the universe, it's not going to go anywhere or do anything. But Paul says, because of your prayer and through the spirit of Jesus Christ, which as followers of Jesus, we don't pray into thin air. We pray by the spirit through the son to the father. And so Paul says, I'm confident that because you are praying and you're joining with me and because God has a plan and he's able to fulfill that plan in and through me, I'm not going to be stuck here forever. Verse 20, he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So several really important things that are happening here. Number one, Paul's very confident that he's not going to stay in prison, that he's probably not going to die at this point in time. This is the tone that the, the book of Philippians carries. And it's one of the reasons that we know that this is likely to have happened earlier during Paul's ministry, not later in Paul's ministry. Now, unfortunately, I don't know why they didn't do this, but in Greco-Roman uh, letter writing custom, they didn't put the date on their letters. Do you know how helpful that would have been? But then, you know, people wouldn't be able to do like PhDs in seminary and, you know, then there's a whole problem there. So, so we have to kind of take some educated uh, uh, choices on when we think these letters were written. And where we've kind of landed is that Philippians is written not during uh, the imprisonment where Paul is going to die as a martyr. That comes later in his life. You'll hear him say things in like 2 Timothy, like, I've run my race. I've finished the course. My life is about to be poured out as a drink offering. And church tradition holds that Paul was beheaded in the Roman Colosseum. And so Paul is in 2 Timothy very confident that he's going to die for his faith. But here in Philippians, he's saying, I'm actually confident that I'm going to be released. I, I'm confident my story's not over here on earth. I'm confident that I am going to be uh, not ashamed but with full courage that God is going to be honored, Christ is going to be honored in my body. Now, a couple of things about those two words, honor and shame. In uh, the Greco-Roman world, honor and shame was really just a huge ethic in that cultural uh, reality. Their, their lives were kind of uh, centered around the ideas of honor and shame. Uh, if you do good things, people will honor you and your life will go well. 
Uh, If you do bad things, people will dishonor you and you will bring shame upon yourself, your family, your community, and the society as a whole. And so they really operated under that paradigm of honor and shame. And just the fact that Paul was in prison at this time would have, from an outsider's perspective, been a shameful thing. But I love that Paul, very counterculturally at this moment, uh, says, flying into the face of that idea, that listen, uh, Jesus will be honored whether I live or whether I die. Because as far as it is for me, I'm going to live for him. And so whatever he calls me to, whether that is to further life and to further ministry on this earth, or whether it is death, he is going to be honored as always in my body, whether by life or by death. And the question that I have as I read this, and I'm I'm just kind of trying to place myself in Paul's position, which, uh, man, he was awesome. I struggle a lot. Um, but the same spirit that lives inside of Paul lives inside of me. And so I'm trying to kind of just say, like, what is going on in Paul's heart and mind and he, as he's writing this? And what's so interesting to me as Paul is writing this letter is the confidence that he has that no matter what the circumstances are going to be and how they unfold, whether he continues to live or whether he dies, he is confident that because he is living for Jesus above all else, that Jesus is going to be honored in that, regardless of the result. Now, now I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you are facing life or death. Maybe you're in a place right now, maybe you've received a diagnosis that's very grim. Uh, Maybe you are fighting for your life in that way, and maybe that's the space you are at in life. And for those of you who are in that space, that is a very difficult space, Uh, That is a space I have no uh, concept of what you're walking through. I know it's difficult, but here's what I also know is that the invitation is present for you in the midst of your suffering to live your life, however many breaths you have left, for the glory of Jesus, that he he may be honored in your body, whether it be by life or by death. Some of us, we're at the height of life. We feel like Everything is good. Maybe we've, uh, you know, stepped in some really, really positive uh, spaces in our lives. Maybe our relationships are in in a great space. Maybe uh, our career is on track and moving forward. Uh, There's a, a lot of ways that life can actually go really well. And Paul would actually argue to you as well, you have the opportunity to live for the glory of Jesus in the midst of your flourishing, right? So so we don't have a prosperity theology that says that if something's going wrong in your body, if something's going wrong in your world, in your life, in your health, it's because you don't have enough faith in God and, you know, it's really all your fault and you should just pray more and have more faith and then everything's going to go better. We don't have a prosperity theology. But we also don't have a poverty theology that says that if anything is flourishing in your life, you have to somehow apologize for that or repent for that. We have a theology that says all of life is lived for the glory of God. Wherever we find ourselves, good, bad, somewhere in between, that we have the opportunity and the invitation to live for Jesus. Well, how does Paul get to that place where he actually like not only believes that kind of theoretically or theologically or philosophically, but that he's like living that out in the midst of his imprisonment? How how does he get to there. What's going on in his heart and in his mind for him to be in that space? I think verse 21 really answers that question. How does Paul get to that space? Live, die, doesn't matter. I'm going to live and honor Jesus. Verse 21, he says this, 
For, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does he mean by that? And that's one of those verses that, that we memorize, right? First of all, it's short, right? Uh, it's easy to memorize. But second of all, it's like one of those things that like sticks out. You can put it on a bumper sticker, on a t-shirt, you know, whatever. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What is Paul saying? Well, as he continues, he begins to really unpack this idea. He says this in verse 22. He says, well, if I'm, a, I'm to live in the flesh, well, then that means fruitful labor for me. So, so he's saying to live is Christ. It's the calling that Jesus placed on Paul's life. If you remember back in Acts chapter 9, Saul's conversion, he goes from Saul to Paul. He, in that moment, uh, Jesus blinds him on the road to Damascus. And then uh, Ananias has to go and pray for him that he would receive his sight. Well, what was happening in the time period between meeting Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus and recognizing, oops, I've been persecuting the wrong guy. Uh, This is the God of the universe. And he changes teams and becomes a Christian, a Christ follower. Well, between that moment and the moment that Ananias comes and prays over Paul and he receives his sight again and, and embarks on ministry, what's going on for those two days? It's an interesting verse. That Jesus says to Ananias, when Jesus calls Ananias, Ananias is like, Jesus, do you know who we're talking about here? This is Saul. He's the guy that's like persecuting the church. Like, are you sure? Anytime you ask Jesus, are you sure? (laughs) And Jesus says, yes, I am showing him how much he must suffer for my name. So, The calling upon Paul's life, when Jesus converts him and makes him a Christian and and says, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. You're going to be the sent one to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. In that first 48 hour period of his conversion, he is receiving visions from Jesus himself about how much he's going to suffer for the name of Christ. So Paul knows that as long as he's going to live on this planet, he's going to be living his life through hardship and through difficulty so that the name of Jesus could be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And so he's sold out on this mission. I mean, of all people who really feel like they know why they're here, they know why they've, they've been put on this planet, they, they know exactly why they're here. I mean, Bob Ross knew he was here to paint, right? He knew it right? But Paul knew he was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So he says, for if I'm to live in the flesh, then that is going to mean fruitful labor for me. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Yes, there's going to be suffering. Yes, there's going to be persecution, but it all comes with a purpose. And that's the purpose of getting the good news out to the ends of the earth. So he says, yet which shall I choose I cannot tell. Now, is Paul actually making the choice between whether or not he lives or whether or not he dies? The answer is no. Paul is not suicidal in this moment. Um, As followers of Jesus, we know that we're made in the image of God and our life is, is full of sanctity because of that. Paul is not saying that he's making an actual decision between whether or not he's gonna live or whether or not he's gonna die. And we know that because what he says next Verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. It's like, I'm, I'm struggling with this because he says this, 
my desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul is saying, listen, my desire in terms of what do I choose? What do I really want here? What am I asking Jesus for? What am I going to God with? Am I just saying, Jesus, I'm just ready to meet you face to face. I saw you on the road to Damascus and I want to look in those eyes again. Or do I remain here and continue to fulfill the ministry that you've called me to? And Paul is saying is, I I love Jesus so much. I want to be with Jesus so much. I want to look into his eyes so much that being here is kind of a drag. And yet I know that my life matters. My life matters. If you're here today and you have struggled of living this life and asking the question, should I live? If you've struggled with depression or suicide or any of those kinds of things, This needs to ring true in your heart. Your life matters to God. He has called you by name. He's made you fearfully and wonderfully. He's given you his image to bear that to the ends of the earth and to tell who Jesus is, to tell the story of the good news of the gospel. So first, you got to know Jesus, and then you got to make him known. (laughs) And so however many breaths God gives you, are opportunities to live your life with that in mind. And so Paul is saying, I so desire to go to be with Jesus on the one hand, but I also know that he's called me to live for his kingdom, to see it expand to the ends of the earth. What gave Paul the perspective that he had? Well, of course, he saw the resurrected Jesus, right? He he knew what, what was coming in the next life in a different way than we know, right? You know, uh, Jesus said, blessed are you who have seen, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We're in the second category. Like you and I, we have not seen Jesus face to face yet, but there will come a day. And we are living in light of that day. Well, Paul had already seen you. He got a sneak peek. You know what I'm saying? You know, early preview. He saw Jesus in all of his glory. It blinded him, fell face down. Who are you, Lord? I'm the one you're persecuting. And so when Paul, right at the beginning of his conversion, saw Jesus, he had a foretaste of what it was going to be like, what John would write about later when he describes what Jesus looks like and and who he is and his power and his glory. And Paul is like, I really want to go there. I really want to go there. And I think for Paul, his longing to be with Christ is that he recognized Jesus for who he is. He recognized Jesus in all of his glory. He recognized that Jesus is like Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13, 44, that he is like the treasure in the field. Jesus says, look, my kingdom, who I am, what I'm doing in establishing the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, 44, he says, it's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he runs away, sells all that he has so that he can buy the field. Because if I can just get rid of all of this uh, worldly stuff that I have and maybe make a few bucks on it and then go buy this field, then I possess the treasure that has the true riches. And what Jesus says is, I'm that treasure. What do you possess? What do you have? 
What would be too costly to give up in order to follow Jesus? And now we know we're not saved by any works. We don't buy our salvation. That's not the point of this parable, right? So Joel, I went to Mosaic today. Pastor Joel told me to just sell everything I have so I can buy salvation. Like, no, that is not what we're talking about. No, we're saved by grace through faith in the treasure, Jesus. And so he's saying, what would you refuse to give up? Like, what would you refuse to release to me? When you recognize me as that treasure in the field, in your joy, you go away and sell everything you have so that you can buy the field. It's not an obligation. It's not like, oh man, I really got to, I got to part with this, this sin in my life or this thing that I, I really have seated above God in my heart. When we recognize Jesus for the treasure that he is, those decisions get very, very, very easy. And what Paul says later on in this book, and we'll unpack it more fully later, but I just can't help but go there. In Philippians chapter three, verses seven and eight, also great memory verses, Paul is gonna say it this way. He says, but whatever gain I had, and Paul had a lot, by the way, I love this about Paul's story. This guy had no reason to become a Christian unless he actually saw Jesus of Nazareth on the road to Damascus and realized that he was the Messiah. I mean, just like from a, from like a defending our faith perspective and like why we believe that the whole story of Jesus of Nazareth is credible. The apostle Paul is one major reason for that. Do you know why? He had it all. He, he, he gives his rap sheet. He's like, hey, I was the Jew among Jews. I was a Pharisee. I was a teacher of the law. I was, uh, as far as righteousness goes, I was flawless. As far as zeal goes, I was a persecutor of the church. I had everything any Jewish man would have wanted at this time in my life. And Paul said, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, everything as loss, because here's why, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What do you place worth in? What do you place value in? Is it friendships or family? Is it your work? Is it this nation? Is it Fill in the blank. What are the things you place value and worth in? Is it wrong to place worth in your relationships or your family, this nation? No, it's not. It's not actually, it's not. But in comparison, here's what he says. I count everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And remembering his first two days of conversion, perhaps, Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Whatever we hold dear in this life, when we compare and contrast it to the glory of Jesus, it is always gonna be found woefully lacking. 
So what Paul says is, Jesus, you're that treasure in the field. You're my treasure. You're who I desire. Everything I had that was gained back here in my past, I now consider all of that as rubbish, garbage, refuse, trash, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, my Lord. What a stark comparison. My wife and I have two kids. They are both in diapers. We have a diaper genie. That thing smells rancid. You know what I'm saying? I'm work, currently working on an invention that's going to like, every time you hit the thing, like essential oils will spritz, you know? <laughs> it's not patented yet, so please don't steal that idea. <laughs> it's a great idea to broadcast it to the world. <laughs> really like a lot of my other ideas. Going nowhere. Um, and when I think of that smell, it's just like pungent, pungent, pungent smell. It's the smell of diapers that have been sitting in one very contained space for a long, long time until it gets changed. And for those of you who have diaper genies or diaper pails, can I get an amen? Amen. You know, it's stanky. You're like, please invent that thing, Joel. That sounds delicious and delightful, right? Delicious. <laughs> Cut that part from the podcast. Um, just think of the starkness of that comparison. Like everything that I had that I thought was so valuable and mattered so much and so profitable, everything in my life that, that I had built up and stacked one thing on top of another, everything that I had gained in my life, I look at it and I compare it to the worth of Jesus. And I think to myself, would I want to go take a deep breath out of the diaper genie? Who would do that? You're disturbed and need help. We'll have people willing to pray with you after the gathering, right? We pray for good things too, right? But this is the language that Paul is using because it's almost as if he's like, I can't even give you enough distance in comparison between how good Jesus is and how much everything else just pales in comparison. See, this is why we come and we gather together on Sundays to remind each other of this. Because we live in a world that is spending billions of dollars trying to help us see how if we could only have their product, we would be complete. But we come together every Sunday to remind each other, to remind one another of the value and the worth of Jesus so we sing songs that are true about Jesus. Words that are prayers that are given melody so that we could remember them throughout the week as we're scattered for mission. The worth of Jesus is more amazing and great and astounding than anything else that this world can shine in front of our face. See, for Paul, Jesus was his greatest treasure. And so he could say, hey, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because when I move from this life to the next, I'm going to meet my Savior again face to face. And I won't need anything else. I think it's interesting that Paul is writing this again to Philippi, which is a retirement community. I said in the beginning of Philippians, it's like Philippi was Rome's friendliest hometown, like the villages, you know? 
And he's writing these words to a group of people who really have it pretty good as far as this life is concerned. And Paul is saying, listen, Philippians, you gotta see that the way I'm thinking about life is the better way because it, it has eternity in view. It has Jesus in view and it will shape the way you think about everything you experience in this life, both good and bad. There's a pastor named John Piper. We named our second child after him. Um, her name is Piper. So we've got Charles Haddon Spurgeon as our first Haddon and John Piper is our second Piper. So that gives you any idea of like the theological stream I like to run in. There you go. Um, but he, he preached a sermon at uh, the Passion Conference in like, I don't know, 15 years ago. And to this day, one of the most impactful sermons that I have ever heard in my life. And I would encourage you to go YouTube it at some point today. Um, it's titled, Don't Waste Your Life. He also wrote a book that is an accompaniment to that sermon. If you love to read, I highly recommend it to you. But in that sermon, Don't Waste Your Life, he brings kind of this idea to the table of, of, of wherever we are at in our life, as long as we are having breath in our lungs, we have an opportunity to live our life for the glory of God. And so he kind of paints this picture of this retired couple in Punta Gorda, Florida, and they just like collect shells for their retirement. And, you know, they just kind of live for themselves. And they're not really connected to the kingdom of God. They're just kind of doing their thing. Yes, they believe in Jesus, but that's pretty much about it. And he paints this picture of like, what's it going to be like when they meet Jesus face to face? And Jesus is like, hey, what did you do with the life that I gave you? And they look at him and say, well, Lord, here's our shell collection. Now, listen, I'm not like vehemently against collecting shells. I do have one question. Why? <laughs> if you love shells, I'm not trying to beat up on you, okay, for that. This is not about that. But it's about an invitation to recognize Jesus as your treasure and to value your participation in the kingdom of God above everything else. That is the invitation that Paul is giving us with the words that he's saying. He's like, man, I don't know which is, which is better. I really want to go be with Jesus. But if I'm going to stay here, I better make it worth it. You ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about your life in those terms? If I'm going to remain, I better make it worth it. See, we all have numbers of days assigned to our lives. David said, teach me, O Lord, to number my days that my life is like a vapor of smoke. For those of us who are older on the tail end of life, we look back and think, gosh, that's true. You know, when you're 15, 16, for those of you who are children in the room, it feels like your life is just going to extend out before you forever and ever and ever. But we know that that's not a guarantee. And as we get older and older, we begin to realize that we've got more life behind us than we have ahead of us. And we start to ask questions about that. And the invitation that Paul would give to us is take every day that we've been given and live that day in view of the eternity that we have with Jesus. You know, on Monday morning, I was starting to prepare for this sermon. And um, 
I was at Starbucks and, um, you know, we have uh, in, in our family right now, uh, we're just walking through a recent death. Um, we have, uh, I'll just paint a short snippet of the life of this person. So my sister um, is married to uh, a man and, and this is his father. So it's my sister's father-in-law. That's how that works. And um, for those of you who know my story, you know that my dad died when I was very young. So uh, it's very crazy that this happened. But in the midst of all of that, my dad was in a coma. He had gotten in a car accident, fallen asleep at the wheel. Coma was six months long. And our church family was like super tight-knit. One of the leaders in our church, his name was Randy. Randy went to my dad while my dad was in a coma and just said, hey, Tom, if you need to go, like if you need to go be with the Lord, that's okay. You don't have to hang on here. I'll make sure your family is taken care of. We'll make sure your family is taken care of. You're good. You can go. My dad would go on to pass away a couple of months later. What Randy didn't know is that his son was going to marry my sister. And so what actually happened is that in real terms, we became family and, and he made good on that promise. And I remember countless afternoons after school at their house, eating their food, uh, playing in their backyard. They had a basketball court in their backyard and playing for hours on end in their backyard. Uh, you know, watching uh, Florida State Seminoles football uh, on their TV. And they're the reason I'm a Florida State fan. And so sometimes I'm frustrated uh, with Randy because of that. But just countless time and energy and effort that Randy placed uh, into my life and helping me grow into uh, the man that God was calling me to be. And, you know, uh, Randy passed away on Monday. I had planned Monday morning to go visit him in that afternoon. Hospice had told the family, hey, you need to kind of, you need to get here. It's very close. So I had planned to go visit him that afternoon, but early in the morning, I got a text that he had already passed away. So I go to Starbucks. I'm preparing this sermon, which is about living and dying. And I'm just kind of processing Randy and his life. I mean, he was a loved Jesus, faithful husband, a father of seven children, four biological, three adopted, one with Down syndrome, just lived his life for Jesus, for the gospel, in his family, with his family, for his family. I mean, this is an incredible man, an incredible life. And I'm thinking about this guy's life and just like, wow, like Randy, I want to be like you. You know, when I'm, when I'm at the end, I want to be like you. And in walks this person who I know, they actually are a global partner here. Uh, he has been a missionary in Africa for the last 12 years. Uh, he's back now. He's handed over the ministry uh, that he and his wife built in Africa for 12 years, handed over to a South African. And now they're here. He, he, uh, so run into him, we're, we're chatting. I'm like, how you doing? So what's, what do you feel like is next? And he and his wife are getting ready uh, to get rid of their house here in Florida, to move up to South Carolina and go be a part of a church plant. He's 65 years old. And he said to me, you know, Joel, it's interesting. I just got on Medicaid. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, kind of what I was saying earlier, like I've got more life behind me than I have ahead of me. And this is a man who spent years on the mission field. Like this is a guy who sold out for the kingdom of God. And he's 65 years old. And he's saying, you know, I just want the rest of my life to count for the kingdom of God. So he and his wife are going to go join a church plant in South Carolina, and they're going to continue to live and, and, and do whatever God has called them to do as, as much as he can do and, 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 and to do whatever God is calling him to. And he's like, yeah, I don't really believe in like the American concept of retirement. I just feel like 
we really just need to live for the kingdom of God. I'm like, yes, yes. So here I am in the morning. I'm, I'm in between this person who has lived his life for the kingdom of God and then died. And I'm, I'm, I'm staring, to, you know, staring in the eyes of a man who is not even close to death. He is living his life for the kingdom of God until his last breath. And this is what Paul is talking about. Like, which am I going to do? If I'm going to go and be with the Lord, that that's way better because then I get to meet Jesus face to face. But if I'm going to be here, I'm going to make it worth it. And so I sat down with this text and I was thinking about Randy and thinking about our global partner and just processing through that. And I come to the end of the passage that we're going to be in today. Verses 25 and 26. Paul says, convinced of all of this, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For you, for your progress and for your joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And when I think about the life of Randy Cox, when I think about the life of this global partner, when I think about our lives together as we live What Paul is saying is that when we see Jesus as our treasure, when we count everything as lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, our Lord, when we recognize that every breath and every day that we have is an opportunity to live for his kingdom and for his glory, then when people look in on our lives, they give glory to God because of it. And so church, I need you to live for Jesus because I'm watching your life. I have two daughters that are going to grow up in this church and they're watching your life. My wife is paying attention to the way that you live. In my family, we need our church family to be living for Jesus so that we are spurred on to do that ourselves as we all collectively see Jesus as our treasure and our greatest value. Then we together will have cause to glorify Jesus. Whatever your life looks like, single mom, you're working hard day in and day out and you're loving your family. When I look at that and I know that you're doing that for Jesus, that causes me to glory in him on your behalf. The, the, the guy who works 80 hours a week, you know, in your business, and then you show up and you serve in children's ministry. It's like, yes, I can't even believe what I'm seeing. This is amazing. Like for for people who are here in this space and you have hit that retirement age and you're looking at your life and you're saying, I'm not just gonna, you know, sit in a rocking chair until I croak. I'm gonna live for the kingdom. Man, for those of you who are in that space in life, thank you for living for Jesus. It gives me a reason to glory in Christ and it paints a picture of what I desire for my retirement if the Lord wills. See, we need each other to value Jesus above everything else so that as we look in on each other's lives, we think to ourselves, wow, that's what it means to live with Jesus as treasure. So today whatever you've brought in through these doors in terms of your circumstances, I want you to know that your life can be lived for the glory of God. However however many breaths he gives you on this planet and whatever that's gonna look like in your story. And we 
will have reason to glory in Jesus as a result. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's pray together. We thank you so much, Jesus, that you have invited us into your story. Jesus, we recognize that none of this is what we deserve. That the opportunity to know you, Jesus, as our Savior and as our Lord, we do not deserve that. But that is because of your love for us and your grace in our lives that you have come and sought after us while we were yet sinners. Jesus, you died for us. And so we thank you that we can know you. And Jesus, we thank you that you not only rescued our soul and brought us into relationship with you, but you have also invited us to participate with you in bringing your kingdom to bear on this earth in whatever way we can. So God, I pray for Mosaic Church that we would see you Jesus is our treasure. That we would look at you and look to you, Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross for us. God, help us to live our lives for your kingdom and for your glory, enduring whatever circumstance we may face for the joy of seeing others come to know you for the joy of bringing glory to you, of living what, however many days you give us on this planet for the glory of Christ. Help us to do that, Lord. So this morning we respond to you. We worship you. We recognize that Jesus, our life is for you and for your glory. Help us to live in light of you as our treasure. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.